Welcome to the Impact Alumni Podcast. My name is Paul Clifford, and I'm the president and CEO of the East Carolina Alumni Association. This podcast is produced at least monthly and exists to provide free and convenient professional development for alumni relations practitioners worldwide. Well, I'm excited about the guest that we have on our podcast today, Andrew Gosen. Andrew is the Senior Director for Social Media Strategy in the Division of Alumni Affairs and Development at Cornell University. He joined Cornell in early 2010 to spearhead the integration of social media and mobile technology into the the division's strategic plan. Now, before coming to Cornell, Andrew spent eight years at the Alumni Association at Princeton University in a number of diverse roles. He currently sits on Cases Commission for Alumni Relations, where he co-chairs Cases Task Force on Social Media. And he most recently chaired the 2011 Case Social Media and Community Conference. Andrew holds a bachelor's degree from Princeton and a doctorate in social anthropology from Harvard. Andrew, we're glad to have you on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Paul, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, I I was thinking since uh, you are one of the, the leaders in social media, especially as it applies to alumni relations, that obviously that's what we would focus our conversation on today. So let me start at the, let me start at the very beginning and ask, uh, how long have you been working uh, at integrating social media into an alumni relations strategy? I'd say that I started thinking about it pretty seriously back in 2006, 2007, which was right around the time that Facebook expanded beyond the .edu market and there began to be more of a critical mass of uh, broader activity on the platform. And it seemed pretty clear to me at that point that the frequency with which alumni of institutions were using this platform to talk about their institutions posed a pretty significant threat to business as usual and alumni relations. So... Since 2000, since 2006, I mean, Facebook was um, among the first. I'm not going to say that they were the necessarily the first social media site, but it was the first that appealed to uh, the mass audience that they have. Uh, but now there there appears to be 10, 15, 20, 30 thousand uh, social media sites. Um, if I'm a person working in alumni relations, where do I start when I'm developing a social media strategy? I think the real trick is to follow the crowds. Um, Critical mass is crucial to a thriving online community, and what you want to be doing is you want to be looking at where there are or there are emerging critical masses of alumni activity um, from your institution. Uh, It's pretty easy to to go with the big ones, so Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, simply because we know that they're already um, sufficient numbers of people in there that it's quite likely that there is a, a good chunk of your alumni who are in the, each of these platforms. And I think it, it, you're going to get the maximum return on your investment if you can find platforms in which a substantial number of your alumni are already inside the gate and, and using the tools. At that point, it's just a question of figuring out where where they're active within that particular ecosystem and how you can participate in the conversation um, that's taking place. However, I think it's worth keeping your eye on emerging opportunities that have the potential to help you achieve your overall strategic goals. Uh, Google Plus is an obvious example at this particular point in time. Um, It's pretty clear that they've had an extraordinary rate of adoption early on in 
in Google Plus's existence, and I think we can infer from that that it's likely that we have a number of Cornell alumni on the platform. However, that's a situation where my personal inclination is to sit and wait and see and wait until Google Plus releases their brand pages so we can see what an official presence might look like, as well as get a feel for what some of the distinctive characteristics of the Google Plus space might be. Um, right now, outside of some some interesting functionality that, of course, Facebook is working on replicating as fast as possible, I'm not seeing anything really unique and distinctive about the Google Plus space that differentiates it strongly from the Facebook space. And it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, if these two platforms have more or less the same sort of functionality, is it worth your institution putting staff time into maintaining a vibrant presence on both when what that may actually be doing is splitting your audience as opposed to keeping them all in one place and trying to retain that critical mass of activity that you'd like to see. So it's a, it's sort of a, it's a, it's obviously a very dynamic and a fluid situation, um, but I think as long as you are paying attention to where your people are, you can't go wrong pursuing that strategy. And you just always want to be really careful when something new crops up that there's a substantial reason for you to go and explore it and perhaps plant your institution's flag inside that space. Um, because if you chase after everything new without doing the thinking about how this helps advance your goals, it's easy to hemorrhage a limitless amount of time and energy into something that may never generate the sort of critical mass and engagement that you need to be able to justify your efforts. You're listening to the Impact Alumni Podcast, and we're talking with Andrew Gosen of Cornell University's Alumni Office. Well, Andrew, let me let me ask you this. Um, it, it seems... You know, when you talk to people about their social media strategy, you know, they'll come out and say, well, you know, we, we use Facebook and we put things out on Twitter and, you know, we're using it to, to promote a lot of the activities that we have going on at the university and at the Alumni Association. Can you talk about the social media as a marketing tool and social media as a way to participate in the conversation and, and the distinction between those two? Well, I think the marketing dimension of social media relates to a lot of the marketing activities that we traditionally have practiced over time that have served our institutions very well. And before we get too hysterical and start talking about how social media has completely transformed the marketing environment, we need to remember that over time the ways that we've marketed to our alumni about events and other things has evolved as, as society has evolved, right? So it's always crazy to me to go back into the files and see the amount of paper correspondence that was taking place, you know, even even as recently as um, the, the mid to late 80s before email really took off. And then we transitioned to email, and there was all sorts of hand-wringing about how we wrap our hands around that, and is that a seismic shift? And I think social media is simply a new iteration of that. Um, once again, I would I would say that what's important here is that you be aware of where your people are, and that's one of the main reasons why marketing through social media makes sense right now, although obviously we need to be aware that there are still people who who engage with you substantially via email, and there is a there is sort of a last holdout crew um, in the older generations that still really prefer the paper stuff. So I don't think that marketing through social media requires you to rethink what you're doing dramatically with the exception of having to be aware that different channels have different characteristics and different things work better in different channels. 
And what I really mean by that is that, obviously, if you take Twitter, for example, um, a 140-character tweet about an event is going to feel a little bit different than what you put on Facebook, even if you're really marketing the same event. Um, Facebook, to me, feels like a place where there's still a lot of potential for experimentation with video. We're doing a lot of that ourselves here at Cornell um, with a series of uh, videos that we're using to promote Homecoming next month, and we're sort of riffing on the ESPN commercials um, featuring various different mascots. So we're having a lot of fun <laughs> with, with uh, you know, sort of humorous videos featuring Touchdown, the Big Red Bear. When you get into the notion of taking part in the conversation and engaging with alumni, however, things get very, very different because the the dynamics have shifted substantially from you sitting in your centralized position at the university and pushing information about things out to alumni. When you're thinking about engagement, the conversation is already taking place, and the alums are the ones who many times have actually caused conversations to start, and they're used to talking in a peer-to-peer way. And if you come in like a bull in a china shop and try to say, okay, the institution is here, we're going to grab the reins here, and we're going to start pushing information at you, the alums are just going to pack up and they're going to move someplace else where you're not there. So it's it's a much more um, decentralized position than what we've grown accustomed to over the years. Um, we're no longer necessarily the facilitators of these conversations. And we need to figure out ways in which we can add value to these conversations and help alumni find each other in a way that's not going to cause them to to head for the hills or head off for other platforms because we're trying to force them to do something that that they don't want to do. And I think one of the crucial conceptual hurdles that you have to clear to be successful in this particular dimension of social media is, is um, humbling yourself and realizing that you actually have no leverage here whatsoever, and that the only way you're going to get your people to engage with you is if you can provide them with some sort of value. Uh, Absolutely. I think one of the eye-opening things about social media in terms of how it relates to us as alumni professionals is I think it's... uh, it makes it has made all of us aware that we've never been in control of the conversation. Um, the conversation up until now has just been one-sided for the most part. Um, I, I think there was a, a misconception that um, we were the drivers of conversations, and yet until social media opened up a, an avenue for us to participate in what our alumni are talking about, um, we had that misconception that they're talking about what we want them to talk about. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's it's shocking. One of the things that I encounter over and over again is uh, running into people who are really upset when they find out what alumni are really saying about our institutions, and it's tough to take somebody who's just received what feels to them like very bad news and to make the point that you just made, that these conversations have always been taking place. It's just that now we know that they're happening, and I would argue that even if that's a bitter pill to swallow up front. You're far better knowing what the conversations are and then being able to incorporate some of that information into your thinking about what you're doing than you are living in this state of blissful ignorance. Absolutely. It's like a, it's like a constant, ongoing um, uh, focus group on on your organization or your program uh, that you can, you can instantly take that feedback and, and try to change uh, based on what you're hearing from your constituents. Yeah, I really, I love the the way you just framed that, the whole notion of this ongoing real-time focus group. 
Well, Andrew, let's let, let's dive in a little deeper on that. So now that we're participating in this conversation, and and more importantly, we're able to do uh, more of the listening, utilizing social media. How do we utilize it to manage and uh, monitor our brand and what people are saying about our brand? So that's a complicated question, and and the various different answers relate to what you're actually trying to accomplish. Um, and I think it's important to emphasize that you can listen to these conversations for a variety of very different reasons. So the easy scenario is listening to what's happening on the channels that you yourself are managing. And that's easy because people have come to you and you only have to go to one place to see what the the interaction is like. And oftentimes you're the person who is catalyzing the interaction. So you put a piece of content out there and people respond to it and they begin to respond to each other and so on and so forth. That's not challenging at all. And the tools that are baked into a lot of these platforms, the analytics tools, make it easy to look at things like um, sort of ebbs and flows and activity and you can start thinking about what types of content people seem to respond to best, so on and so forth. So you can invest a lot of time in thinking about that particular end um, but it's, it's not complicated because it's all happening in a, in a localized place. Um, one reason you probably wouldn't be interested in listening in that space is that if you're pursuing the, the sort of focus group um, approach that you just mentioned, this is a very easy way to do that. Something else happens when you are actually succeeding at creating a community in which there's enough of a critical mass of activity that people are talking to each other and you're not always in there catalyzing the conversation. It's important to be listening so that if you can see the conversation beginning to ebb a little bit, um, your community manager can pop in and try to try to get something going so that you sustain a fairly constant uh, stream of activity. But as I said, that's all pretty easy stuff to do given given the platforms and the way that they're configured. What gets interesting is when you start doing what the private sector is is using social media to do, and you are monitoring your brand and the conversations that's taking place about your institution out there in the wild. There are a whole variety of tools you can use to do this. Um, Some of them are free. A good example would be socialmention.com, which is more or less a a Google alert that that searches the social web. Uh, There are some tools that are either free or extremely inexpensive, um, Hootsuite, uh, TweetDeck, Tools like that, that once you invest the time to learn how to use them effectively, um, can be, be very powerful. And then there are other sort of premium, uh, enterprise level tools that, that tend to have nonprofit pricing. So here I'm thinking things like Meltwater Buzz, Radian 6. Um, they provide an incredible amount of data collection capability and sophistication. And that's really, really great to know that that stuff is out there. But there are two key caveats that you want to be thinking about. One is, do you have any idea of what you're actually trying to accomplish with these tools? Because if you don't know what you're trying to accomplish, it's hard to assess which tool best helps you achieve that end. And secondly, do you have the staff time to make productive use of the amazing amount of data that you're actually going to be um, accumulating uh, using these various tools? You can have the best data in the world with the most powerful tool in the world behind it, but if you don't have the person in place who's got the skill set and the time to think about what that data means, you're going to have a hard time using these tools strategically. So 
I think it's an interesting question how much activity there is out there about your institution without there being any substantial push or campaign taking place on your part. Um, however, that's that's sometimes a humbling experience. For the social media and community conference back in, in April, this is the, the case conference, I did a, a survey of uh, the amount of of out there in the wild discussion about Cornell relative to discussion of the the iPad 2, which um, was was one of the most popular trending topics on Twitter at that point in time. <laughs> right, right. And learned that the iPad 2, on average, was mentioned around 200,000 times a day, and Cornell University, on an average day, is mentioned around 400 times. Wow. And that's humbling. But it also gives you a pretty good baseline sense of of how much people are talking about what you're doing. Now, have you all, My have mind is, is important for two reasons, right? The first of which is that it's pretty clear that Apple may have a need to monitor mentions of the iPad 2, and they may need a very fancy, powerful listening tool to be able to do that. Right. But needing to listen to 200,000 tweets a day is a very different prospect than having to listen to 400. And maybe maybe I don't actually need a tool that can handle that. It's kind of like um, you know shooting a mosquito with a shotgun. It's just dramatic <laughs> right. overkill. Secondly, and this is a point that I've been thinking about more and more having gone through this exercise, is that, that I think a lot about ROI, and I know lots of people are thinking about the ROI challenge and how we can prove that our efforts in social media are actually moving the needle in a variety of ways that, that get our institutions closer to where we want to be. And I'm thinking more and more that having a sense of the, the baseline amount of conversation about your institution on the social web is really useful in that once you know that, if you can see that amount of activity nudging up because of, of efforts that you are you are coordinating, that's a pretty a pretty powerful bit of ROI data that shows that you actually are um, enhancing the amount of conversations that's taking place out there on the social web about your institution. And I've gotten that far in that thinking. Um, I think over the upcoming year, we'll be paying pretty close attention to that when we are making conscious efforts to promote particular events, especially on the social web. Um, so I'm thinking hashtags related to homecoming, related to our big leadership conference in January, relating to reunion. Uh, but it feels to me like that's one of the, the few sorts of metrics that I've encountered so far that in my mind really makes a, a clear and quantifiable um, it gives a snapshot of, of how we are, in fact, impacting the ecosystem. So you're telling me you haven't engaged you haven't engaged people to every time Cornell is put out on the social web, they don't send. This is how you can get more information about Cornell. I, I, it seems like every time I put out something about an iPhone or an iPad, I get offers for free iPhones or iPads. <laughs> so I, I've stopped actually using those words on uh, on Twitter. Right. Right. Um, yeah, that's not happening with Cornell. <laughs> exactly. But that does bring up an interesting question. I know um, we, when we got into social media here at East Carolina, one of the doors that it unexpectedly opened for us is the opportunity to engage volunteers um, on, a, on a totally different level um, in terms of having them be community managers on our behalf, um, to be bloggers for us. Talk a little bit about how either Cornell or other institutions that you're aware of are using now alumni as volunteers to help manage the social media. So I think I've got 
two different parts to that answer. In terms of Cornell, we have not yet gotten to the point where we've formalized a social media volunteer role, although that's very much in our thinking and we recognize the the potential of that. Right now, we're trying to invest resources in training the people who want to use social media on behalf of their communities in such a way that they can do so more effectively. And a lot of that is simply identifying people who are already using these tools pretty effectively and then holding them up as examples of best practices. And another dimension to this is providing the very basic training that somebody would need, for instance, to get themselves um, to, to establish a page on Facebook or to get themselves onto Twitter and just get used to the, the whole hashtag groups, not groups, uh, you know, tweets, retweets uh, right. terminology that I think is, is such a, a problem for people um, who are trying to adapt themselves to Twitter. So if we can provide webinars, for instance, that will walk alumni volunteers through that sort of content and position them to begin to experiment on behalf of the communities they're managing, that is a big win. However, I think Scott Morey at USC is the most forward-thinking in in his use of, of alumni volunteers um, that I've heard of at, at any institution um, in North America. And what they're doing at USC is they've recognized that the people who have started USC-related groups out there without any any um, intervention on the part of of the institution itself are actually exactly the sort of people who you want to fold more thoroughly into your your cadre of volunteer leaders. I mean, these are people who recognize an opportunity. They took the initiative to start this platform up, and they've proven that they can catalyze USC-related information on the social web um, through their efforts. So they've actually formalized these folks' volunteer role, and they're beginning to invite them to to all of the meetings that the more traditional volunteers go to. And I think this is a, this is the way that most of us are going to have to evolve simply because it makes too much sense to do otherwise. But I really love the notion of taking these people who have, who have proven that they've got the skill set to make this happen and putting them in contact with the more traditional volunteers in such a way that volunteers can learn from volunteers as opposed to having this all be mediated um, through the staff. I always feel that that sort of volunteer support and volunteer training um, is the most effective way of, of establishing best practices and getting that kind of conversation going. Absolutely, and that that's kind of the scenario that we had when we were looking to launch our LinkedIn strategy. Before we launched it, we looked um, on the LinkedIn platform to see what other East Carolina groups existed, mm-hmm. and, and lo and behold, there was an East Carolina Alumni Association group out there that was just controlled by a volunteer, well, it was controlled by an alumnus who we had no interaction with, um, that weren't a current volunteer. Uh, and over a, a period of several months, we worked with that, um, with that alumna and had her actually turn the LinkedIn group over to us, but we, she maintains, um, we've maintained her now as a manager of that group as a volunteer. And so that's, that's opened up a, a whole other realm of volunteerism where someone may not be the rah-rah, get up and, and lead a chapter kind of person, but they're more than willing to do the be behind-the-scenes uh, things that we need for our chapters to be doing on uh, in the social media world. Right, and I, I feel like this is something else that I've been thinking about a lot recently, is how if you start thinking about the number of 
alumni you have connecting with you in some of these spaces on the social web relative to the number of people who are in a particular chapter. And I suppose this varies a little bit if you're a dues-paying chapter versus uh, everybody who lives in a particular area is, by definition, part of the chapter question. But the interesting thing for me about these masses of people on the social web is that these are all people who've opted in. And they've opted in to engage with you or somebody who's acting on behalf of your of your institution on a platform that actually gives you the capacity to engage with them on a daily basis. And that's a, that's a really powerful opportunity right there. And if you look at it in that way, um, so let me give you an example here. Uh, we have, we have almost 30,000 people who are part of our Cornell alumni network on Facebook. And if you look at that aggregation of 30,000 people relative to the size of all of our regional populations, right. it's the second largest that we've got. And so I'm beginning to think about, okay, well, what are the implications of that? Here's a group of 30,000 people who we know want to engage with Cornell and LinkedIn. And then we've got all these other groups that historically we are staffed to service, but we don't actually know an incredible amount about that population other than the, the core cadre of leaders that we we all have in, in our uh, club model. Um, but you know, for decades we've been sending we've been sending postcards out, not knowing whether the people who receive the postcards ever actually look at them or if they put them directly into the circular file. And we put a lot of staff time behind efforts like that. And I'm wondering if the opt-in and real-time connectivity nature of some of these emerging communities on the social web, I'm wondering if that structural uh, structural dimension of these communities means that we should be investing more staff time there and not less, um, simply because we do have this capacity to connect um, over and over again. Tacking back to the, the volunteer question, I've just been thinking as we've been talking about how it seems like strategically a lot of people are really thinking strongly about how they can find influencers in the social web. And I think that, that the people who founded these groups, like the one you just described, right. they're influencers. You don't actually have to look that hard to find people who are your powerful influencers in the social web because they're the people who've already taken the initiative. Absolutely. I mean, you can even take a look at if you're, if you know, switching gears to the Twitter platform, who are those people who um, have a higher frequency of retweeting what you're putting out there, and is there a way to engage those folks in, right. a, in a more intentional way? Absolutely, and that's an interesting example because so part of the whole influence economy out there on the social web has led to the emergence of tools like Peer Index and Clout and so on and so forth. Right. Um, and I think that provides an interesting opportunity for you to provide value to your influencers who are out there, right? Because they can they can retweet you, but if you're listening to them and you're following them and you can retweet them, right. that actually moves the needle a little bit given the way the algorithms and a lot of these influence measurement tools work. And that's a way to provide value that simply didn't exist before because this particular ecosystem didn't exist before. But it's interesting to think about how we can, as we're trying to make a place for ourselves in these conversations, if we can do things that help the people we're conversing with, that dramatically increases the likelihood that they're going to want to engage with us. Absolutely. Well, I think we could talk about this. I, I know I could talk about social media and how we intertwine it into our, our marketing and our relationship strategies that we have with our alumni. But I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you, you know, 
you have your finger on the pulse uh, probably as good as anybody in this business. What are some of the horizon issues or, or what is the, the next big thing, if you will? I know we, we touched on Google+, Plus, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what we need to be on the lookout for in the future. Let me throw two things out there. I, I predict that probably within two years or so, some institution is going to get themselves burned by being caught doing data mining using social media profiles that either runs afoul of terms of service. Something's going to happen that's going to make some alumni angry, and it's going to turn into the first uh, social media lawsuit, social right? media crisis. <laughs> relating to this that I've encountered. Um, I'm consistently shocked by, well, actually, so thinking back to um, the M. Stone or Slover Lynette uh, surveys that have happened over the past two years right. in conjunction with CASE, when we ask people about obstacles to achieving their social media goals, privacy is always right down there at the bottom. And I've, I've spoken to Michael Stoner about this um, numerous times. We're both kind of freaked out by that because it seems to me that that's actually one of the, the things that has the most potential to blow up into a real, real problem for your institution. And especially with LinkedIn, people are so quick to say, oh, yeah, it's, it's out there. Um, you know, we'll just take the updated business information and we'll dump it into our database and it's all good. But it's never occurred to them to read the terms of service and recognize that that's very specifically prohibited without the express consent of either the individual involved or the um, or LinkedIn itself. And I feel like it's inevitable that people who simply aren't thinking before they do things like that are going to get themselves in trouble. It's not a question of, of if, but when. And um, I don't think whoever ends up being caught in that particular trap is going to enjoy it very much because, you know, the social web can be your best friend, but it can also be a pretty terrifying and powerful enemy when the winds turn against you. Right. So that's that's sort of a horizon issue that I just I think that as a as a community of practitioners we should be more attuned to and talking it through as a community um, more thoroughly than we have been thus far. In terms of a really exciting opportunity, I think gamification has tremendous potential. And obviously, it's got a little bit of a, a buzzword status going on right now to the extent that there's a little bit of backlash. But the whole concept of taking elements of game design and game dynamics and putting a very light game layer on top of a lot of the stuff that we're already doing, and by doing so, enhancing engagement and enhancing the likelihood that people are going to stay closely engaged and you know, quantify how they're doing as a volunteer relative to other volunteers, um, stuff like that, how far they've gotten through a particular uh, training curriculum, that wow. sort of thing. I feel like that's got incredible, incredible potential. So is that um, based off the concept of kind of like the, the the badges that you would earn in Foursquare or the scavenger, how many points you can uh, you can accumulate by check-ins? Precisely. Excellent. Precisely. And there actually there are a number of institutions that have been doing this behind the scenes. I know Penn has their alumni in what's it called? I can't remember the name off the front. It's an alumni quotient or an alumni index that they use to do their internal um categorization of of how hardcore of an alum you are. So it's things like alumni interviews, giving, um events that you've attended, so on and so forth. And I sort of 
love the notion of what if you just made all of that sort of thing transparent and made it very explicit what you need to do to advance up ranks to sort of level up in gamification terminology um, towards being a more thoroughly engaged Penn alum. And then there obviously would have to be some sort of um, reward or stewardship that makes it worth your while leveling up. But people are so used to that. Uh, people are so used to leaderboards and badges at this point in a variety of different contexts that I don't think this would feel particularly jarring. Um, and if, if it's done well, it, it definitely keeps your attention and keeps you coming back for more. Absolutely. I mean, and if you look at how people are interacting in the, um, are interacting in the, on the social web, you'll see how many people do you go to their Facebook page and it's littered with Farmville, um, uh, accomplishments and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And so people are already used to, uh, interacting, uh, on the social web in that way. Uh, yep. you know, you look at the statistics of how much the, the gaming industry, uh, and I'm talking about the, the video gaming industry, how much, uh, in billions of dollars annually that generates. And so, uh, certainly it's, uh, it, it makes sense that you're identifying this as a, as a future, uh, horizon issue. Um, Andrew, let me, when, when I served on the case commission from, from 05 to 08, the big topic was vendor relations. We had the, um, we had the student loan crisis. We had, uh, the, uh, New York State Attorney General going after the, the credit card companies. Uh, and that was the hot topic that, that I got to work on. Now it seems like you are, are, are positioned during the now the heyday of or at least the at least the developmental stages of social media in terms of how alumni programs are using it during your term on the commission and I mentioned in the intro that you're the co-chair for the um, social media task force talk a little bit about the work that you guys are doing on that task force what you're what you're looking to accomplish by, by having that so the task force itself emerged as a joint project of the Commission on Communications and the Commission on Alumni Relations. And it was Andy Shanlin and Kim Manning um, who decided that, that it made sense to convene something special for this because it obviously social media overlaps significantly um, across those two dis- or sub-disciplines of advancement. And it became pretty clear that we needed to fold um, fundraising in as well. So I think the the point behind the commission was simply to get a conversation started about what are the implications of the social media explosion for all three of these areas and for our institutions. One part of what we're trying to do is begin to collaborate with the right partners to produce the sort of research that will make it possible to start making data-driven decisions about where we take our institutions. And that was a big chunk of the thinking behind this partnership with M. Stoner and Slover Lynette on the social media and advancement survey. Another piece of this has been trying to create a space where people who want to take a more active role in the broader advancement conversation about this have a, have a place in which they can share ideas, they can share best practices um, so on and so forth, and that was the genesis of the case social media blog um, that you can find on the on the case website if you go into communities and you look for blogs. I believe the social media blog should be right there. And I guess a third piece of this has to do with how we approached the social media and community conference last year. Um, 
Case has made a, a really great effort, and I can't say enough good things about Jennifer Lichty, who who was the conference manager for this particular conference, to structure the conference in such a way that people who come can actually get their hands dirty and get firsthand experience with some of these tools, um, because that that gives you something tangible to take away. So so the two examples that that we're pretty pretty proud of from the social media and community conference were, first of all, the hands-on session in which we actually had people producing social media strategies in response to various scenarios and then building the core components of those strategies and sharing them with the rest of the conference. And then we, we were really happy to have Scavenger present at the conference uh, this past April so that people could actually get their hands on a geosocial tool and see how it felt to use a tool like that in the context of a conference. So that worked very well. We've also been thinking pretty hard about how you can go about raising the level of a lot of the conversation about social media in higher education. And that's tricky because conversations tend to tend to operate according to a lowest common denominator right. um, function in that if you've got people in the room who just don't understand the tools, you inevitably have to invest time in explaining why it is that you're trying to have the conversation that you're trying to have within the context of the platform, and that just tends to slow things down. So we tried very hard to have a, a dual track, at, two tracks at the at the social media and community conference, one of which was sort of building block where you're dealing with the fundamentals, and one of which was higher level and aimed at more esoteric topics, um, which I think ultimately address more directly how you connect uh, some of these tools and the use of these tools to your broader institutional goals. And that's just really tough, especially since you've got more and more entry-level sort of assistant director of an online community positions cropping up, um, where, where people are not only learning what it's like to use these tools on behalf of an institution, but they're also learning about advancement in general. And I don't think we've got a silver bullet that solves this problem yet. Uh, but I do think one of the things that CASE has to address as social media in higher ed matures is this this issue of how you can both provide relevant training to the people who are new to advancement and to social media um, and anything but just uh, using it on, on a, in a personal way. And then also the folks who've been doing this for longer and are, are thinking um, more more systematically and more strategically about how all of these tools interface with with the institution itself. That's that's really good stuff, Andrew. Well, I want to thank you for joining us on the Impact Alumni Podcast today and for talking through, uh, I know, a, a topic that is, is on the minds of alumni practitioners worldwide, and I appreciate you being a guest today. I really had a good time. Thanks a lot for the invitation. You know, one of the things that I suggest when I when I speak at conferences is for people to develop a must-follow list, especially if they're engaged in Twitter. And uh, Andrew is certainly on my must-follow list. You can follow Andrew at A. Gosen. That's A-G-O-S-S-E-N. You can follow him on Twitter there. Uh, he is always has his finger on the pulse of what's going on in the social media world. Well, thank you for joining us on the Impact Alumni Podcast. You can send us feedback and connect to the show. Visit our website at alumnipodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at impactalumnipodcast.com. Thanks for joining us today, and we will talk to you soon. Take care.